2: Yeah. Welcome to the show, everybody. You're listening to The Confessionals. I'm your host, Tony Merkel. Thanks for being here. If you have a crazy, wild experience you want to share with me on the show, go ahead and shoot me an email. My email address is The Confessionals at The Confessionals That's The Confessionals at The Confessionals Or go to the website, The Confessionals Hit the contact section, and you can reach me that way as well. Otherwise, for me, just get a hold of me. If you want to hear more shows on a weekly basis, go to The hit the join button, and become a member. Members get access to bonus shows. Shows every Thursday plus the Tuesday shows ad free and every time we do an overtime segment that is for members exclusive as well. So if you want that extra content, go to the professionalspodcast.com slash join and become a member. Also, friends, prepare with preparewiththeconfessionals.com. I highly encourage people to start pursuing sustainable living. Gardens are a great thing. I started doing gardening last year, and I did an awful job at it. I think my crop yield was like 5%, 10%. It was really bad, but you got to start somewhere. You got to start trying somewhere, and that is what I am doing. And in the process of that, listen, you need emergency supply food. Imagine something bad happened while I'm growing my garden. I only got 5% yield off of it. I'm starving. And that's why we make sure we have our shelves filled with preparedness food, like preparewiththeconfessionals.com. If you're interested in making sure you guys have stock shelves, Go to preparewiththeconfessionals.com, get yourself emergency supply food and survival gear. All right, friends. Well, let me tell you something. I have a really bad voice today, so I apologize for that in advance. I am coming over a wicked cold, man. This cold kicked my butt and uh, I'm, I'm still ticking, but man, I am trying to catch my breath. I'm, I'm short on breath. I'm very uh, foggy in my mind. I can't think straight, so uh, bear with me, but... I will say this, we have a great show planned for you today. We have Derek Olson coming on the show again. He was on for episode 472, Peru's Megalithic Cave of Mystery, where we talked about ancient architect and this megalithic structures. Well, we come back on a day with Derek because we want to talk about this ancient technology that maybe went into the megalithic structures. I thought it was a great conversation talking about the return of megalithic technology. And I think that it's something that we should really highly consider because it's not something that is going to be a stone age technology. I think what we're talking about here is technology that is far superior than what we have today. And so the fact that it's returning means that we're going to be advancing advancing in technology big time. Uh, It's a good conversation we had with Derek and I hope you guys enjoy. So let's get to it right now. All right. Today we got Derek Olson from Megalithic Marvels. Derek, what's going on, brother?
0: Hey, Tony. Great to be back with you. Excited about what we're going to cover in this episode for
2: sure. Yeah, man. Listen, I'm real excited about it because, well, before we before I get into that, I actually uh, I actually got to tell you, man. Like you, the last time you were on the show, people really, really enjoyed it, and uh, I I was, uh, you know, it was the first time I think I've done a show focused on those topics, and. I wasn't sure how people would re- perceive it, you know, cause like there's, there's tons of platforms out there for that kind of content. I assume, I guess. And I just, was like, you know, people may not like it. And I put it out and people, they, they absolutely loved it. They were like, we want more Derek Olson, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so
0: Yeah, that's great. Dude. I'm glad they were liking it and not hating it,
2: man. Yeah, man. They, they liked it a lot. Uh, and so I, I, You and I, I mean, I think last time we talked, we had talked about you coming back on again. And, you know, like it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, we should have you back on. And there's so many different topics to talk about. And then it was like, okay, I know what we got to talk about. (laughs) Because uh, recently, Joe Rogan came out with a new show with Graham Hancock and uh, uh, Randall Carlson. And um, Graham is always great. And so is Randall. Together, it's, it's, it's awesome. And, and what I, what I initially like, contacted you about, and we can go this direction, any direction we want to go today. Uh, but I was really taken back by what Randall said about the ancient technology that's going to be getting released soon. Uh, and I know you've heard about this, right?
0: yeah yeah no that was that was bombshell news that kind of has sent reverberations through the uh the alternative history world for sure, so I'm excited that we're gonna we're gonna get
2: on this yeah absolutely uh you know i um when when I first heard him say that, I got scared for him i got scared for him. And I got scared for the guy, the, the people who are coming out with this information, because if anybody's right. listening right now that, that 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 doesn't know what we're talking about, uh, essentially, uh, Randall Carlson said in the next three months there is going to be an information uh, dump that's going to be centralized, so nobody can claim ownership of it, and it's going to have information on how to uh, basically. Uh, to have new forms of technology that's far superior than anything we have. Is that right? That that's exactly what he was basically saying, right?
0: Right. Yeah. So yeah, Graham and Randall are talking with Joe about, you know, ancient history in Egypt. And it it was cool. Like you're saying, Randall kind of goes off script for a moment. It seems like, and he basically says, I think we're close to rediscovering some of this lost technology from the prehistoric past. And you see Joe Rogan's like, eyes light up and he's like what kind of technologies are you talking about and randall's kind of like well it's like he hesitates and he says I, I think he says i don't know if i should go into this and and uh joe and graham kind of pressure him and yeah like so he goes on to say how uh, he knows of people that he's in contact with that he's known for the, like the last seven years that in secret are working on uh rediscovering some of these ancient technologies and and he talks about how they're going to open source them like you said so that they can't be suppressed. And yeah, the big tease was in about three months, they're going to release them. And so he continues to share uh, how there's this laboratory in the Maldives.
2: What where is, some what is of these that, by the way, real quick, before you go any further, the Maldives, I, I, I heard them saying that I have no idea what that is.
0: Yeah. Or I think he said the Maldives, it's uh, it's like an Island chain um, somewhere in the world. I'm blanking on where it is exactly myself. Okay. Um, but it's kind of a, a ritzy area. And so there's some laboratory where these researchers are building these prototypes, um, which Randall says are using some of the same technological principles that, that uh, Nikola Tesla discovered that are based on implosion versus explosion. And Tesla famously said that if you want to understand the secrets of the universe, you have to think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. And so Randall's saying that's exactly what they're doing with this technology And, um, in this video clip, you guys can go find on YouTube. It's one of, uh, it's on Joe Rogan's channel. It's one of his recent videos. Uh, so Randall kind of has this computer screen and he's showing a picture of like Tesla's famous planetary power plant, uh, from that was made in 1900. And, uh, he says that they're working on a generator, these people he's talking about, that's very similar to what Tesla was using with that. Where it's all based on geometry, vibration, and resonant frequencies. There's no moving parts inside this thing, and um, so it was pretty. It was pretty crazy. It got people excited, and like I thought the exact th- same thing you did. Like, I hope you've got a uh, nice security detail at your house, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that and that's exactly what I was thinking about. Because my my when what they were talking about, I just go back to the history of Tesla and all the things that, you know, could have been if there was an active suppression on his research. Uh it, it not just from, you know, governmental, but also other scientists that just were envious of him and tried to actively discredit him. Imagine if he would have had the support he had back then, how far along we would be with our technology because they say that uh he's that that Tesla had uh, technology that's in our cell phones today, like he, like he had, he was so superior far advanced, and and that alone. So, I, I, if I, I'm gonna, I might go, go all over the place today, and just bear with me. But it, this, yeah. this is me, like this is me thinking things out loud. Like you're probably the first person I talked to about this. So, so the fact that uh, Tesla had this technology, and then we know that uh, actually Donald Trump's uncle who was an MIT professor, John Trump, he actually went in and confiscated, or actually didn't confiscate, the FBI did, but he analyzed all the information that was in the archives of Tesla. I talked to a guy that was a, was a um, he, he was a, an engineer for the military back in the 60s. And he said back in the 60s, they had technology that he was working on back then that we have now access to today. So if they had... Tesla's studies and research and they took it for themselves, I'm starting to really get on the side that maybe not all, but a big majority of history's UFO sightings are coming from our own government and the fact that they had access to technology that they just didn't make public. And when you look at the the evolution of what people are seeing in the skies, when they first started talking about this stuff, there was cigar shapes. But one of the things was the bell it looked like a bell. And the Nazis were working on the DeGlaca, which was a bell-shaped looking UFO. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm getting more and more convinced that we, uh, we as modern humans have access, secretly access to this technology that only certain people, government organizations had and stuff. And if this is going to get released open source to everybody, I think that there's a lot of people invested in not allowing that. They, they ventured, they ventured into the idea of like oil companies and you know big, big corporations not wanting that information out right. today. But like even governmental, I mean, if you open source this stuff, it's say, say, say our uh, our government has a lot of this technology already, and they they keep it under wraps. If that gets open sourced, and all of a sudden China, Russia, Iran, all these other countries have access to that information as well, that's a big problem for them. And so I, 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 when I, when I heard him say that, I was just like, man, this could get juicy, dark, and weird. Right. And it's,
0: you know, if you ever see something in the sky, for example, like uh, you referenced that could be, you know, maybe black budget technologies that the mainstream doesn't have. I mean, you know, there's something to it. I was in Alaska back in 2016. Flying from Fairbanks to Anchorage on a red eye flight. So it's about midnight, perfectly clear skies. I could see the northern lights. And I'm a guy. I'm an explorer. I'm always looking out the window and I was just taking this in. And I'm thinking, man, there was, I saw a bright star off. Uh, I was sitting right outside the wing, you know, above the wing. And I'm thinking that isn't it? That must be a massive planet. Next thing I know, this thing. Goes at the speed of light straight up, straight down, and then levels back off where it was. Like anti-gravity technology. And I, I almost had a heart attack on the plane. (laughs) It was a pretty empty flight and almost everybody was sleeping. I'm looking around like, is anybody else watching this? And I realized this was a craft that was, it was shadowing our plane. This thing followed us for an hour all the way into Anchorage. And as we descended, it peeled back off away and every once in a while it would do a, an anti-gravity maneuver and my mind was blown like i am seeing something uh you know whether this is a ufo or again my guess is it was some kind of governmental black budget technology it was it was mind blowing to uh, see for sure
2: absolutely uh now do you with that experience though do you feel like that if everybody was asleep on the plane and it seems like it's shadowing the plane did you ever get a sense that Maybe this thing knew you were watching it. It was do it was doing it for you, uh, and, then, and you don't have to say yes. To that. I'm just asking because I've I've heard people say such things, and you know it. it it's at least you got a light show out of it. <laughs> that's an intriguing question.
0: I've never thought of that. Um, I never thought of that, but that's very interesting to to think about. I know it was so real to me. Number one, like I said, I was looking around trying to see if anyone else was watching this. No one was. Um, but I made a point too I was gonna ask the pilot about it, you know, because they usually they're usually standing there as you usually deboard. well, he never came out. he was locked in in the cabin or the cockpit, so I was bummed about that, but it was very real. I was very awake and um uh, I guess at least I can say I saw a uAP right? but have you ever heard about um Coral Castle down in Florida? No, I haven't. So this is kind of an amazing modern day technological feat that dovetails with what we're talking about. And it's right here in America. Um it's called Coral Castle. It's located in Coral Gables, Florida. And there's a guy named he's not alive anymore, Edward Leedsklinen. Um this guy was not even five foot tall, they say, yet he was somehow able to harvest, cut, and hoist. Over 1,000 tons without any equipment. And his, he's dead now. I think he, um, built this in the 50s or 60s, I believe. Um, but you can still go see it today. And you'll see these massive blocks. Um, and, a, uh, according to neighbors and people in the know back then, he would, he would work on this at night when no one could see him. And neighbors say they could hear him whistling while he built. And you can see photos of this contraption. Uh, It was a tripod with like a magnetic box at the top and a magnetic crank at the bottom. So it's like he was using magnetics. And when someone asked him how he built this, um, he basically said, I'm paraphrasing, I've discovered um, how the pyramids were built. And that's how I'm able to do this. And uh, most likely it was some type of sound or electromagnetic energy to lift heavy stone as if it was like lighter than a feather. And um, it's just crazy to think about, but that's something that listeners can go uh, Google or watch on YouTube. Lots of great videos about it. I want to do a feature on it soon too, but uh, that's kind of a modern day example of an anomaly we have. How did a five foot tall guy do this without any major earth movers tractors cranes right
2: yeah so now as you you mentioned him i remember hearing about this but th- th- what you just said about the um how, how'd you say how, how did he say he moved it or how, they theorized how he moved it with uh, sound right yeah he
0: was he would be heard whistling while he built this at night in the dark and, uh, again, when asked, how did you do this? How humanly possibly did you do this? He said he discovered the secrets of how the pyramids were built and that, that allowed him to do this.
2: Wow. Okay. So, uh, I had heard, I, I had, I, I remember hearing about this guy and I just, I remember feeling like he discovered a new way to use pulleys. I didn't realize that it was more advanced than pulleys. Uh, but, uh, it, it kind of goes right along with, uh, what they're talking about today, uh, did did he say or was there a reason why he didn't want to release the information or was he scared for his life? I mean, I would probably be scared for my life.
0: You know, I really haven't uh, researched it enough to get those answers. Um, again, it was really shrouded in mystery. And it's it's it's, you know, in the alternative history world, it's really one of the great mysteries we've got kind of, again, modern day. Um he never came out and said, This is how I did it. He it was real secretive. Again, he mentioned the pyramids and studying them and and that was that what enabled him to construct this. But again, you can go see it today and it's these uh man, just giant stones there in Florida.
2: Yeah. So uh I'm sure there's a lot of people that listen to Florida that know exactly what this is. Uh now with this idea uh of rediscovering ancient technology, uh what we have in these pyramids and all over the world, these pyramids uh, is a baffling. Like it's not the fact that they exist as much as how they came into existence, which is the mystery. Uh, you know, because it seems like from watching Graham and, and other people talk about these things, you know, th- there's plenty of theories and, and even complete 100% understanding as to exactly what these places were used for, why they were used. Uh, a lot of it, you know, is spiritual, but, uh, the The idea of how these came into existence, and then all over the world, uh, is there? What do you think? I mean, is there like a? uh, Do Do you think that back thousands, twenty five thousand years ago, when man was supposed to be, you know, just learning how to break a stick in half, uh, there was a technology that was universal, global, that allowed mankind to globally. Almost as one unit, be able to make these things. Like th- these pyramids are all over the place.
0: Yeah, I think 12,000 plus years ago, uh, there was this golden age civilization. I don't believe that everybody was able to enjoy or use these technologies that we're going to talk about. It was most likely the elite of the golden age, um, kind of like we see today. You know, there seems to be an elite ruling class that. Is, uh, has the ability to get stuff and technologies that, that the rest of us can enjoy. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's evidence that suggests there was an ancient global power grid system that was like uh, in the shape of a, I think it's called the dodecahedron. It's a very complex geometry symbol, which is sliced into sections. And the Giza pyramid, uh, represents the center of this grid system. And so magnetic ley lines, when you study these, they have a particular a particular vibrational quality to them that seems to be able to channel energy, uh, for all kinds of purposes, including healing purposes, which we'll get into with these, some of these ancient Egyptian temples. Now it's crazy because, uh, Egyptologists, they'll, they'll, that's those who study Pharaonic Egypt. Uh, the Pharaonic dynasties were the, the Egyptians that ruled about 3000 BC. Um, And so Egyptologists tell us that the pharaonic dynasties or the dynastic Egyptians, as I'll call them, again, who lived around 3000 BC, they tell us that they created the pyramids as tombs, right? But unlike the confirmed Egyptian tombs in the Valley of the Kings, which are like eight hours away from Giza, no hieroglyphs, no mummies, No Egyptian artwork depictions have ever been found on the bare megalithic walls inside the Great Pyramids. And so, one of the great revelations I had when I was in Egypt this last February on our tour, when you're climbing through the pyramids or the Great Pyramid, for example, this thing is not even functional to be climbed through uh, by a human. And so, for instance, there's this, these steep 300 foot descending passageways, right? And they're, they're, they're not that tall. You have to bend over. And so I have a small backpack on. I'm doubled over going down 300 feet, right? Steep incline. And you're holding on to the rail systems they've put in there in modern times in these wooden stair planks. How would the dynastic Egyptians of 3000 BC climb up and down these, carrying heavy statues, sarcophaguses, right, on their way to a funeral procession, they would slide down like a water slide on these bare, smooth, slick, megalithic uh, walls. And so, that was one of the big takeaways is that just the functionality of this thing is is no way it was made just to be a tomb. So, the key is uh, the word is repurposed. I believe, and many other great researchers before me, including our um, guide in Egypt, Muhammad Ibrahim, who's also uh, an incredibly bright Egyptologist and one of the only Egyptologists to break with the mainstream and say that I believe a megalithic civilization predated the dynastic Egyptians and made the pyramids. So he's really been blacklisted, kind of like Graham Hancock. Um, but it's likely that the dynastic Egyptians came along in three thousand BC found these megalithic marvels, as I call them, and repurposed them, right? They did bury some of their pharaohs in there um, as tombs. They did take over these megalithic temples and build on top of it with their sandstone architecture and add their statues. And so that's where it can get confusing, right? Um, Muhammad Ibrahim. He told me this when we were talking last. He said, for example, the like I think Khufu gets the credit by the mainstream for building uh, the Great Pyramid about 2500 BC. And Muhammad would say Khufu wanted to be buried inside of it to receive the energy of the pyramid because he thought he could then cross through portals and it was his ticket into the afterlife to explore these other dimensions. So, I think that's likely what's going on. And there's so many crazy anomalies and in, in, uh, technology we can get just talking about the Great Pyramid, but I don't want to talk too
2: much. Well, um, you could talk as much as you want, my friend. Uh, the, the fact that we, we've progressed past our initial thoughts and understanding of what these things were it, within our lifetime, essentially, it, it's got to scream that in the grand scheme of time, we're behind. On what technology has to offer, but what was at one time here uh, the, the, the the mere fact that like what you were talking about how the initial understanding of of these these slopes and stuff and and how it's almost impossible, right the fact that we've progressed past that to say that's silly, that doesn't make any sense that should tell us that they were so far beyond our possible understanding how this thing could happen and, and and part of it i think is because we've been traditionally thought to or taught to think that the longer back you go the stupider the people were and that's just, that's just not, last time you were on the show you talked about uh, uh these um these like scoop marks in the rock i forget where we were talking you were talking about and stuff but yeah the aswan quarry I I haven't been able to stop thinking about it, man. Like I have that mental image in my head because I looked it up and stuff. And I was just like, how the heck could they have done that? You know? And and it's just, to me, it it really shows that the technology that they had back then was far superior. But also uh, what you said on the previous show has really rung with me as well, which is that they viewed technology differently than we do. We look at technology in a much more vicious way. Ooh, what can I do with this? You know, like who can who can I right. control? You know, ooh, if I have this, it means they can't something. And, uh, and it seems like they didn't view technology that way. And it could have been because there was more of a, a global coordinated effort in a sense. I mean, you're talking about global power grid. Uh, it, it, could there have been, a, not maybe not like a global society, maybe there was, but maybe it's just like a global effort together with this technology. I don't know.
0: Yeah. No, because we see it in, you see a lot of the same things in Peru, um, the megalithic walls there. Uh, we're talking, I, I use, the, it's not a real phrase, but I like to use it, megaton, I mean, 125 ton single blocks Sacsayhuaman in Peru. They, and, and what you're seeing is, you're not even seeing the 12 feet that go underground. So it's it's earthquake proof. And it's so massive yet so precise, you can't fit a hair through it. I mean, this is the kind of technology we can't replicate today. You mentioned Aswan Corey, for those who may have not heard that first show, and I recommend
2: maybe you go back and do it for context. But Yeah, for, 472 Peru's Megalithic Cave of Mystery. And when I say it in my head, I, I hear an echo, megalithic cave of mystery, mystery, mystery. <laughs> yeah. And I shared a
0: pretty crazy story about inside that cave. So definitely go back and listen to that. Um, but yeah, this Aswan quarry, I like to say it's one of the smoking guns to me of ancient technology that was used, at least in Egypt. It's the world's largest obelisk laying in this quarry. It's 1,200 tons. And, um, you know, the naysayers will say, well, this was just, you know, they were chiseling it out with chisels and hammers, and um it got a crack, so they stopped using it. No, you get up close to this, and yes, the dynastic Egyptians of 3000 BC were chiseling and hammering in there, but there's two different methods of quarrying. Of there's that primitive method and the superior method, which is what looks like ice cream scoop marks you get down around these uh unfinished obelisks you see one meter wide scoop marks surrounding it all the way around okay so this is uh one scoop mark after scoop mark after scoop mark one meter it's like a giant ultrasonic cutting tool was reaching down going right through this extremely hard granite and scooping out um, that section. And when you look at the wall that follows the scoop mark up, you see these dark reddish lines, which is like a sign of excessive heat. Again, maybe due to an ultrasonic cutting tool. So, that is an incredible uh, piece of evidence of lost ancient technology. But then I just, um, you and I were talking about this video I just posted on uh, Instagram of this levitation technology. And I wanted to talk about that because to me, this was really cool. And you can go to my Instagram, Megalithic Marvels, to see this reel. And um, this is at Esna Temple, which is located near Luxor. So again, this is like 10 hours, 9 or 10 hours south of Giza. So a long ways away. And this temple is dedicated to the Egyptian ram-headed netter or god known as Kanum. Uh, and this temple is larger than life. I mean, these pillars inside are so massive, it it's really takes your breath away. Um, but again, going there with your megalithic goggles on and having a uh guide like Muhammad Ibrahim is key because he went and took us to this depiction on one of these walls. And what you see is, um you see this two giant figurines. One is this ram-headed god, Kanum. On one side, and on the other side is this Egyptian and ancient Egyptian king. And they're both standing on the sides of what looks like this megalithic temple, right? Um, but the temple is miniature compared to them. But as Muhammad points out, the temple that in that picture represents the very temple we're standing in, which is massive, right? Massive temple, larger than life. And But when you look close at the depiction, you see that the temple is uh, not resting on the ground where their feet are. It's, you know, several inches off the ground. And it's also um, surrounded by what looks like an energy field. And when you look close, you see both of their hands are holding tools that, that are pointed at this structure. And then the king is shooting this string of beads over his head down into the gate. And um, uh, it's known as, again, the levitating temple. And so, Muhammad, uh, he, he theorizes that the beads that the king is holding represent an energy field and that this is depicting the knowledge of this lost technology and giving us a clue possibly how they built it. So, that was uh, really incredible to take in and I'm so glad I captured that on the video because… It's really been, uh, there's really been a buzz about that. Like people are excited to learn about how did they possibly um, build this stuff and move this stuff. And again, there seems to be a huge connection to sound waves, to resonant frequencies. And I can talk more about that if you want.
2: Yeah, please. I I would like, I would like definitely to hear that. Um, Before you get get into that though, I want to ask you, and this is more of a personal um, thought, I guess. But why why do you think that you're talking about a levitating building or levitating structure here? Uh, and this is depicted, and I don't know how how old this is as far as like how long we've we've had this, we've been able to see it and stuff. But it, it seems like a lot of this stuff has been able to have been studied for fifty, a hundred years, and it's only until recently that we're we're starting to come to this point where we're talking about this other other thought process with this stuff. Do you think it's because humanity has advanced far enough with technology on our own that we can start conceiving the idea of this kind of technology, even though maybe it contradicts the fact that in the past they had it when we're supposed to be just dragging our knuckles on the ground? Great question.
0: It feels to me like overall
2: like, In the world right now, there's
0: a lot of people talking about a fourth turning. It's like there is this mass awakening on all kinds of levels, politically, holistically. Like people are finally waking up to you know healthier eating and organic foods, and um, the damage that you know a lot of these drugs can do to you. and, And so it's like there's an awakening, I think, to even ancient history. Again, this Netflix documentary. This is It's the reason it's so huge, this ancient apocalypse documentary that you referenced that Graham Hancock's released with Netflix. I mean, this is huge because, uh, you know, Graham Hancock wrote some books like Fingerprints of the Gods. And Joe Rogan said in that video we referenced that he read that years ago, and he basically became this disciple of Graham Hancock. And so, the last several years, he's had Graham Hancock on his podcast, which is, I think, the biggest in the world, right? And so… That's really helped uh, what what was normally known as alternative history or pseudoscience. I get accused of that a lot, pseudoscience. To now, but the thought of, well, wait, maybe there's something to this if Joe Rogan's talking about it, right? And now Netflix is not just releasing it on their platform, but it is a like a flagship series by Netflix, and so this is getting people's attention. And to me, again, that's that's proof that there is an awakening to these ideas, where people are they're searching for truth, I guess, and and I think that's part of the reason I've seen growth with what I do. It's like people are just hungry for this stuff; they're looking for an outlet that's talking about it. I think that's why your podcast is so huge, and the stuff you're getting into, um, people. Well, I think people people know there's so much more. Even you know, it, it seems like. Atheism is fading and people realize, man, there's a spiritual world that is very real and the ancients talked about it and they want to experience it. They want to understand. And so I think in a nutshell, that's why
2: we're, we're starting to hear about this in the mainstream. If you're listening to this Gerber Life Guaranteed Life Insurance Sponsorship ad, there's a good chance that you're alive. And if you're not, well, this may not be of interest to you. Now, I know what you're thinking. Life insurance? I'm going to live forever. Death is what happens to other people. Well, for the sake of argument, let's assume you're wrong and that someday you won't be listening to podcasts anymore. I know it's not easy to talk about, so I'll do the talking. If you're 50 plus and alive or 50 to 75 in New York, you can apply for Gerber Life Guaranteed Life Insurance with guaranteed acceptance regardless of your health. And since this life insurance is guaranteed, you don't have to get a medical exam. In fact, you don't even have to fill out a health questionnaire. For a free quote, just visit GerberLifeFamily.com. Then when you stop, I mean, if you stop listening to podcasts, your family can use the insurance money to help cover your financial expenses or anything else. Your kids already inherited your ears, allergies, and questionable singing voice. Don't make them inherit your final expenses too. See website for terms and restrictions. A great awakening amongst humanity is uh, uh, it, it's it's amazing because it, like we're I, like what you just what you just described we're living in it right now and it, it's 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 crazy to think about on certain levels because you have on one hand this great awakening and then you have this other hand this are this seemingly archaic way of living life and doing things uh that seems to be on its way out, but also clawing and grasping for every last inch of life in our in our consciousness and understanding and uh, that 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 yes, that does go politically as well. <laughs> if anybody's thinking, is he hinting? Yes, I'm hinting <laughs> but it's it's um it, it's really it, it's really an interesting time to live in right now uh and uh, I I'm just I'm fascinated uh, and, and this is this is a curveball for me because I'd never, I was never the person that was looking at the past of as anything. I never really cared that much, you know. Like you, I, I learned about the pyramids. Oh yeah, they're big buildings out in Egypt somewhere. Like I didn't, I didn't care. And, and now it seems like everything that I'm looking into points to our past and trying to understand our past. And uh, it, it, it's just, it's been fascinating. It's been a fascinating ride for me. Um, so I think you, I think you said you you wanted to get into. Uh, I, now I'm drawing up like, was it vibrational frequencies or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we
0: can talk about that.
2: And it's interesting.
0: The There was a company called the Nippon Corporation from Japan back in, I think, 1978. They basically wanted to prove to the world that they could figure out how the Great Pyramid was built. And so they basically uh, tried to build... A, uh, the Great Pyramid stands almost 500 feet. Well, they tried to build a 60 foot tall miniature version of this using limestone blocks. And all they were doing was just stacking blocks in a triangle, right? Like it wasn't like the real mechanical Great Pyramid that has passageways and chambers. Um, and they were going to do it using ramps, pulleys, what they, what the mainstream tells us how they built the Great Pyramid, right? Giant workforce, slave labor. And um, literally within a short amount of time into the project, they just gave up. They couldn't do it. They couldn't even build a sixty-foot tall uh, pyramid that just stacked blocks on top of each other with ramps, pulleys, and a workforce. They had to bring in helicopters, cranes, <laughs> earth movers to do it. And uh, people can search that to really get the details. But it was uh, one of the great fails of modern times. Of of, of Humans today trying to prove how they built it. And the fact that they couldn't even build the 60 foot one was pretty incredible. So the Great Pyramid uh, alone, again, there's so much mystery regarding this. It stands approximately 500 feet tall, composed of 2.5 million multi ton blocks. And again, mainstream tells us that it was just constructed by this huge workforce cutting, shaping, moving large limestone blocks into place using sleds or wet sand. I mean, come on. And um they tell us that, again, uh the fourth dynasty pharaoh Khufu built it about over a 20, 10 to 20 year period, uh, which concluded about 2500 BC. Well, if you kind of look at some of these estimates about that, it states that the Great Pyramid, um, if it was constructed over one pharaoh's reign like this, each huge stone would have to be cord shaped and moved and set into place every two minutes. So kind of shows you uh, the incredible impossibility of that. And then again, back to Graham Hancock, he talks about how we can calculate from its mass that this pyramid weighs about 6 million tons. It's got a footprint of 13 acres and it's more than 750 feet long each side. And but it's not just big, it's precise, and it's locked in the cardinal dimensions of the planet. It's targeted on true north within three sixtieths of a degree. So again, it's aligned, and it seems to be aligned with the constellation Orion as well. So there's so much going on. It's a work of stunning artistic achievement, really the work of masters of architecture. Uh, for example, there's blocks of stone inside the king's chamber which is like the Holy of Holies inside the Great Pyramid. These things are 70 tons each. They were raised in more than 300 feet above ground. And so the achievement of making it into a high-persistent structure like this is an unfathomable because if you make any tiny mistake at the base, by the time you get to the top, it's a mess, right? And so… Um, the Journal of Applied Physics, which was a, it's a pretty big, uh, scientific magazine. They released a study a few years ago based off the research of scientists from Germany and Russia, and they concluded that the Great Pyramid can concentrate electromagnetic energy in its internal chambers and under its base. Uh, so this is important because it means we've got scientific data that supports the theory that the Great Pyramid was a technology structure of some kind. And again, there's a huge media coverup. When this report was elite released, you weren't hearing about it uh, in the mainstream. Um, many people might've heard about Chris Dunn. He wrote a book called the Giza power plant. And uh, sometimes I don't like that phrase, the Giza power plant, because your mind can kind of go back to like just a crummy old, like electrical plant in your neighborhood. Um, so I don't like that phrase because of the visual you get, but I like his book and he has a lot of great theories and he, he theorizes the great pyramid, uh, he believes was built to provide a highly technical society with energy. And it was like this holistic energy device harmonically coupled with the earth where the earth is the power source and the pyramid is basically tapping into it. And so when it resonates with the earth, energy is drawn through it. And so much of it's related to the geology of the stones they used plus water. And so it's crazy when you start researching this thousands of years ago, the Nile appears to have run right up next to the great pyramids. And then over a hundred feet down under Giza is a massive aquifer. And um, in some of the pyramids, you can see erosion. And so it appears that water was the source. and when you study acoustics, acoustic harmony was there to probably work on the bonds of water. Uh, Stephen Miller theorizes that it was, it was breaking hydrogen down into oxygen and the water was used to produce the electromagnetic field with a resonance to keep the pyramid humming like a machine. And so each pyramid was, might've been tuned to a, a, a frequency of sound. Um, and every chamber was probably specifically designed and advanced with acoustics uh, to generate specific sound frequencies. And when you're in the Great Pyramid, there is a spot called the antechamber. You go into it right before you enter the so-called king's chamber, which there was no king ever discovered in there. (laughs) But this antechamber, it looks like you're in a giant machine. It looks space-age. I'll send you a photo. I meant to actually send you some photos. I'm kicking myself, so... I wanted you to visualize what I was talking about, but this antechamber was the most amazing thing I saw inside the great pyramid. It is, you know, extremely hard granite. um, but these, these blocks are layered. Like you're looking at hydraulics inside an engine or something. It's mind blowing. And again, the crazy thing is when you look at the, uh, archaeological record the dynastic Egyptians and I might have mentioned this on your last show they they had copper chisels and hammers and they might have even had some iron which is a little harder but copper and iron are like three to four maybe five on the Mohs scale of hardness that is the uh, standard when judging how hard a stone is like diamond is going to be a 10 right Copper's down there, three or four, iron, maybe five. We're talking about Aswan rose granite. It's got quartz all inside of it. It's extremely hard. So it's like an eight, maybe nine on the Mohs scale of hardness, I believe. So the point is it's way harder than the tools the dynastic Egyptians had. So one, even if they could use blunt force, you know, for a decade to pound away and try to uh, shape granite. They couldn't have done it with precision towards mortarless and it looks laser like cut, right? So again, you see that kind of stuff inside the great pyramid and you just know inside the whole thing reverberates and echoes on frequencies. And um, it just really gets you thinking about how crazy it is that all of this granite you see inside the Great Pyramid, people just assume, well, they just grabbed these blocks right there on site and started to build this. No, guess what? These blocks come 11 hours away. The only place Aswan rose granite's found is in Aswan, 11 hours away from Giza, by car, I believe. So you not only have the problem of shaping it, creating this, how in the world did they move seventy-ton blocks? And we're talking millions of them. Eleven hours by car, right?
2: Yeah. It, see, and that's what that's that's what's so fascinating about all this is when you start hearing about all these anomalies. Uh, well, seemingly anomalies for us, uh, and it's hard to comprehend. So you're sitting here and you're talking about the structure of the of the pyramids and how you know the, the Nile flowing next to the pyramids and then the aquifer and you're, I'm starting to draw this picture of okay so water plays and the power of water and and then the energy and, and then that's creating the sound and you're they're, they're harvesting the energy that's cre- that's created from the sound and or vice versa and it, 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 I start thinking about all this stuff and then all of a sudden you're like and they pulled these things from all the way over here. And we don't know how they did that either. I'm like, well, that, okay. So, so, cause, cause part of me's like, okay, so, so it, it's this one spot and we could just figure this out. But then it's like, well, well, how do you make that mobile then? Because that, like, they, <laughs> they were, they were moving all this stuff in and, and how did they do that as well? Uh, do, is it possible? Do you think that, um, this is really futuristic thinking, by the way. Uh, <laughs> do you think if we ever get to a point, where we actually understand what the pyramids were for truly, how they operated, how they worked. Do you think that it's a possibility that we could um, renovate these structures into operation today? Because, and I ask that because, uh, I think it was in the first episode of, of uh, Graham, Graham Hancock's uh, series, um, what's it called? Apocalypse? Uh, Ancient Apocalypse. Ancient Apocalypse. So like, in the first episode, I, I believe it was, or maybe the second episode, uh, it was probably the second, they, they were in Mexico and they were talking about how there was like three layers of pyramids uh, at this one location, it was like they built on top of them, you know, and and it, it seems like that. I mean, maybe I misunderstood, but it seems like it was over time, like different civilizations built on top of them, understanding there was an importance to them at least. Uh, I, 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 it, do you think that the the pyramids in Egypt could be reusable at one point? Um,
0: boy, that's a that's an intriguing question. Hey, why not? If if we were truly open sourcing the technology, nice. um. And tapping into the geology of how it was used, that could be a possibility. Here's one thing I know for sure. The dynastic Egyptians were 100% trying to do that. And I'm going to give you some proof of that. And so, um, it's likely, I think, that—so you look at the Great Pyramids. You know, there's three of them right there in Giza. Think of them as this holistic, um, these holistic energy devices— that were powering the megalithic temples where the ancients would come for healing and fertility. So if I sent you a picture of there's a structure called the Valley Temple, um, or these other temples, like the Esna temple I referenced with the uh levitation depiction. Um, these are temples, um and a lot of them have the same megalithic stonework that's inside the Great Pyramid, except where the pyramid's not functional for a human to be or some kind of ancient being to be climbing through, these megalithic temples are. And so it's likely that, uh, many theorize the pyramid was powering these temples that were designed for healing and fertility. And when you study the, uh, dynastic Egyptian writings and their hieroglyphs, they're talking about these were for healing. And so, um, Muhammad Ibrahim, our guide, theorizes that um, these were possibly connected, kind of like a wireless connection, but using a resonant energy through the ground. And according to him and many other like tour guides, there's massive uh, secret tunnels that are closed off to the public running all over Egypt and all over Giza. He calls them megalithic tunnels. And so um, were these possibly like some kind of lev train where where they were moving stuff? It's crazy uh, to think about it. And then you've got the obelisks we can talk about. At Karnak are some of the world's largest obelisks. We talked about the unfinished one, but it's it's mind-blowing to see the ones that are still standing like at Karnak. I think Karnak has the largest standing obelisk in the world. Made of rose granite, again, this thing is massive and it was likely operating like a huge antenna uh, for cosmic rays that could release energy upon, you know, this ancient civilization. So, again, we think of power poles and electrical cables and they're using this holistic uh, type of technology that's tapping into geology, just tapping into nature and it was just far simple. And again, how they made this stuff was simple. But then you look at the hieroglyphs themselves up close um, and you see evidence of ancient technology. On our last show, did I talk to you about a site called the Ram Museum and uh, the megalithic statues? That doesn't ring a bell, but that doesn't say much for me. <laughs> okay. Well, this to me was one of the greatest surprises on my trip last in in Egypt this last February. I knew that going there the you know the pyramids were not created by the dynastic Egyptians they were megalithic and I knew there was megalithic temples in Egypt but I assumed that most most of the stat- the statues you see in Egypt were all dynastic right again made by the dynastic Egyptians in 3000 BC king Tut, Khufu, those kind of guys So, you go to this site called the Ramizeum in Luxor, and it's dedicated to Ramses II, uh, who ruled about uh, 1300 BC. And they call this site, they've dedicated to Ramses II, again, a dynastic ruler, because guess what? The name Ramses was found at this temple. But here's the question. What if this is talking about more than one Ramses? What if this was the original Ramses, follow? And so you walk around the site and it's massive and you see, you know, mostly these sandstone pillars, which is much softer than granite, right? You see these sandstone walls, you see these sandstone statues. They're all built in sections. Like there's a leg section, a waist, a head and torso section. These are dynastic statues. Made with sandstone, much softer than granite, but that's the best they could do. Make sense? And it's about 20 feet high, made in sections. Then you go around the corner, and you see a megalithic statue. This thing is severely damaged. Uh, when it was first made, it probably weighed um, two tons, but the, the head, torso, and waist that you see now is uh, 1,000 tons. You get up close to this, and guess what you see? Muscle tone. Precision made from one solid piece of granite, and you can still see muscle tone in its arms. And on its shoulder are these, I call them precision, deep-embedded 3D symbols. Looks like they were cut with a laser machine. And then at the base of this statue that it broke off of, you see these same symbols. Well, guess what? Muhammad could read the symbols. They're what people would call hieroglyphs. I theorize this is actually the original language of the megalithic builders. This is likely the original Ramses. Ramses II of the 19th dynasty came along. And was so blown away by this, he tagged everything as his. But his construction is far inferior, right, with softer sandstone than this precision granite stuff that, again, looks like it was carved in layers. And um, Muhammad actually wrote, he read for us what these symbols said at the base of the statue. And it said, the powerful system of the sun, chosen by the sun, son of the sun ramses and it was incredible when he wrote it it gave us goosebumps because we realized um okay there's a whole lot more going on here it appears that again this way predates ramses ii of the 19th dynasty does that make sense
2: yeah it makes a lot of sense and it kind of confirms this this idea of um this what's the word i'm looking for uh degrading of technology over the time. It, it, it's, it's so, like, time moves forward, but technology apparently doesn't sometimes. And uh, it, it, so w- was this then, so, so, so this, this was then after whatever, I, I think Graham talks about the, the Great Flood. So th- this was after that, that, that catastrophic apocalyptic event that knocked us back to the Stone Age, essentially.
0: Yeah, yeah. Whatever happened, you know, which appears to be around twelve thousand years ago, uh, Graham really uh, believes in this Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, where this comet broke off and it hit the North American ice sheet, and if you study the science of that, it would have literally sent a catastrophic flood all over the Earth, and it would have ushered in the Ice Age. And so, um, to me, that really has a lot of parallels with the biblical flood too. And so, either way, there was, I believe, 100% an ancient cataclysm um, that wiped out this lost knowledge of the golden age or the golden race. And so, the dynastic Egyptians, again, 3000 BC, they were a lot closer to that than we are today. So, they still had the uh, fragments of this lost knowledge, Right. And that's why they would write about it and talk about it in their uh, dynastic times. Um, and that's why they were repurposing these temples in the pyramids, because a lot of this energy was still flowing out of them back in the day. And actually, when you go to all these sites I'm talking about, you'll see these mud brick walls. And the dynastic Egyptians had built these mud brick walls to surround all of these temples. And when you start studying again, the geology of like a lot of this, um, mud bricks, um, has like 62 minerals. So it plays as an energy insulator. They were trying to insulate the energy inside to use it and to protect it. Wow! And again, when you look at Sandstone, sandstone. it's formed under oceans, it contains sand and salt, it absorbs negative energies, um, and so it's used in sites to balance high energy. Quartzite, uh, higher quality than sandstone, it's like crystal, it recharges positive energy. Limestone, they use that a lot on the outside of the Great Pyramid, highly conductive, um, it, it uh, absorbs pollution plays like an electrical current for granite. That's why there's granite um, underneath it, inside of it, right? Granite from Aswan is basically, they call it radioactive stone, and it can like send and receive waves. And so again, geology is such a huge part of this. And that's why they were building these mud brick walls around to insulate the energy and try to save it because even in their day, they were coming there for healing, fertility,
2: and um, trying to repurpose a lot of it. That's incredible. That, that's incredible. Uh, I I really hope that the next three months goes by smoothly, and this <laughs> this, this information drop. Imagine, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you had thought about it, but like, if you just sit back and think, like, if that is the success. And that info drop is successful. Who's to like? Who knows where we're at in twenty years from now, technology wise? I mean, imagine. So it's twenty twenty two, and I always use this this example back in the early two thousands. Just say twenty years ago, how far we've grown in technology. Well, imagine if there's an info drop that kind of put like like just nukes like gives us the power of a nuke behind it and just shoots us forward. I mean, like. I really hope that it happens and it allows us to understand the past better. But also, I'm really hopeful that some way, somehow this technology could really solve a lot of our issues that we have on a global scale. Um, I, I, I can't even fathom it. I can't even imagine what that even looks like. But the idea that maybe through this, this technology dump just this, this, this nonsense between countries can just kind of come to an end, and just be, and we can kind of live a little bit more at peace. I, I really kind of hope so because you know I, I'm a father of a little kids, and <laughs> and I, I'm I'm over here trying to raise them, and be like you can be anything you want to be in this world. I'm like, if we're still here, sucker, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, it, yeah. I, I should
0: talk about the sphinx before um I forget because to me uh when when we're talking about dating and cataclysm and you know some people hear twelve thousand b c and they it really short circuits their mind um especially if they're coming in for like a you know young earth paradigm um Robert Schock, uh who's a geologist um Scientist, I believe, too, done some incredible work on the Sphinx. And he talks about how, according to, again, standard Egyptological thinking, the Great Sphinx was just carved from the limestone bedrock on the orders of the Old Kingdom Pharaoh Khafre, around, again, 2500 BC. When you look at the Sphinx, though, um, on its body and on the walls that it's of uh, the Sphinx is enclosure, you see this massive, heavy erosional, uh, evidence. Uh, And he concluded it could have only been caused by uh, rainfall or water runoff. Obviously, the the Sphinx sits on the edge of the Sahara and it's been arid for 5,000 years. Um, Furthermore, uh, various structures securely dated to the Old Kingdom show only erosion that was caused by wind and sand, very distinct from water erosion. And so, he came to the conclusion that the Oldest portions of the Great Sphinx, what he refers to the core body, must date back to an earlier period. And his latest research now points, guess what, to the end of the last Ice Age, 10,000 BC, a time when the climate was very different and included more rain. And many people have said that, well, the Great Sphinx can't be that old, um, in, in part because its head is as a dynastic pharaoh head, right? Um, but if you look close, especially, uh, look at a drone shot from above, you'll see that the head is tiny compared to the body. And, um, it's clear the current, her- the current head is not the original head. The original head would have become severely weathered and eroded. Again, the keyword is repurposed. The dynastics came along and recarved it and it became naturally smaller. And, um, and, uh, Shock also pointed out, and I'd, I'd never heard this till a couple months ago, this was mind blowing. There's hieroglyphs dated around 3000 BC that talk about the Sphinx as a lioness called uh, Mahid or Mahed, and, and this uh, lioness guarded the royal archive. So, 3100 BC, when the dynastic Egyptians are referring to it being. They're referring to it being very ancient already if you read the whole context of this. So again, this corroborates that the Sphinx goes back to a much earlier period. And, uh, Dr. Robert Schock even found, um, he, what he calls a secret chamber underneath. I believe it's right paw. He was never given access to go down there or even put cameras down there to show us. But, um, again, Egyptology, they know a lot of this, but they'll, they won't. They won't talk about it, show it, or admit it. Um, but the key I, sh- I share that is this, I, I believe corroborates that a lot of these structures in Egypt are much older than we've been told. A and B, like in the Sphinx, we've got here, we've got this, this, the statue, this creature that I believe represents, you know, a golden age hybrid of some sort, right? Um, and again, it was likely this lioness. And so, that gives even an even stronger case of these megalithic statues I talk about. So, the ancients weren't just building these structures. I mean, they were artistic. They were creating. They left behind depictions for us uh, to see. The key is the dynastic Egyptians were emulating them, so those symbols I talked about at the museum I believe, were part of the lost, original ancient Egyptian language, and the current dynastics incorporated those into their modern-day language. That's also why they dressed the way they did and depicted the way they did, because when you look at these statues at the museum and there's also one at Karnak, it's it's the waist-down Again, you see muscle tone in the thighs. Pure granite. These are megalithic. Muhammad took us to the uh, Egyptian museum. There was a statue there. He said, "Look at the feet." Again, this is rose granite, some of the hardest material on earth. It had precision-carved toes, like all the way between the toes, right? The and you when you get up close and you look. You can see the most finite looks like ultrasonic evidence of of cutting all along it, like it was machine cut. Mind blowing stuff. I've said a lot, but I had to get that out.
2: No, I appreciate it. Uh, with with the Sphinx now, I'm assuming they they don't want to uh, even go down this road and acknowledge it because the 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 I don't know who it is, like the the Egyptian Historical Society. They want they want to be perceived historically as superior, you know, and that's the, the the image that they have right now. Not that they came in and repurposed structures that already existed. Speaking of the ancient Egyptian historical society, I, I wonder if there was a, a historical society back then was like, you can't cover this up. This is part of history. And they're like, we're going to do it anyways. You know, just like today where it's just like, you can't touch certain buildings. It's, it's history. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's really interesting. Now he, did he, did he, uh, I forget the guy's name that you mentioned about discovering the, the, uh, the chamber underneath, I think it's the right, paw. Uh Did anybody ever get into that chamber or is that just a un- quote unquote unacknowledged history? Um, Well,
0: you know what's crazy? There's some photos you can find of the lead, um, Egyptologist of today. I'm blanking. It's Zawi Hawes, I think. Um, again, he's considered like the top Egyptologist that runs everything. Um, there's photos of him going inside secret entrances on the Sphinx's back. So there appears to be uh, a couple secret entrances. Um, there's also a hole in the top of the Sphinx head. Um, there's a painting from the, uh, I believe it's the 18, early 1800s of uh, an explorer visiting the Sphinx. And they drew uh, you know, a, a depiction of what they saw and there was someone coming out of its head. Well, if you look at aerial shots, you'll see this massive hole in the Sphinx's head. Uh, and It's like plugged. And again, then there's this, according to Robert Schock, this chamber under its paw, which is like, he says, probably this, this lost library, a, a royal library. And then uh, again, there is an entrance on its back that we've seen that lead Egyptologist going down to in a photo. But again, that won't be released to the mainstream. You have to search to find that. So many enigmas, so many anomalies, but there's definitely a whole lot more going on. Uh, than we've been led to believe. Um, have I talked to you about the Serapium? Do we have any time left? Yeah, we got plenty of time left. Go ahead. Uh, so this was one of the most fascinating sites in Egypt. If you Google the Serapium, you'll see these, basically this site is a labyrinth. It was discovered in 1850, rediscovered, I should say. And it hides 25 granite black boxes crafted, again, with laser-like precision. Each box weighs approximately 70 tons. It's got a lid of 30 tons. They're all, they're cut from the same piece of granite. Each box is found empty and their purpose really remains a mystery, but it's estimated that these 100 ton boxes would need at least 2,000 men to transport them, right? Again, if you're thinking through the mainstream explanation of this. However, when you go visit the Serapium, you realize the tunnels that these things sit in are like two feet wider than the boxes themselves. How would there have been enough space for a vast army to transport and lower these boxes? It's impossible. Um, Plus, the stone was quarried about 500 miles away. And so the official statement from Egyptologists is that these boxes were made during the dynastic period, as, as burial places for sacred bowls. Um, but again, how could they have precision crafted these with their softer copper tools? And um, also, it would have been pitch black in there. They would have had to have massive torches for light. There's no black soot on the ceilings. On three of them, you do see some what you would call dynastic Egyptian hieroglyphs. But it's funny. You look at the, um, the biggest box, the most famous one that's got these hieroglyphs etched all over it. I believe it's really graffiti because you look at the hieroglyphs and it's just really crude. It's like it was scratched into this, uh, almost mirror smooth like finish. I mean, it shines. And so these boxes, other than, you know, this, these hieroglyphs are almost some of them pristine. Uh, shape it's mostly because they were buried forever under the the sands of time but these are incredible to see you can go see pictures of this on my um instagram it's one of the pinned posts i've got and it looks out of this world
2: it it really does i i remember seeing i i probably i think it's a real right yeah you made it a real because i I remember watching it over and over again. <laughs> it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And what's really, what's, what's really like the smoking gun in all of this it, that it seems like people can't get past it, is the fact that we weren't supposed to have, to, like, we didn't have the tools for this with like, like, it, it's like trying to, uh, ca- carve a wooden goose out of a, a, a marshmallow you know, or using a marshmallow to carve a wooden goose, you know, and it, it's just, it doesn't work. Uh, Really interesting stuff. Uh, I just remembered that I'm going to actually be meeting you in February, right here in Tennessee. You're coming down, aren't you? Speaking at That's the, right. yeah, we're, we're, both, we're, go, we're both we're both we're both uh, guests at uh, BlurryCon with the Blurry Creature Boys. Uh, BlurryCon, yeah, yeah. So I I'm actually I, I didn't think about that until just now. So I mean, you're going to be there, and uh, I, I, there's going to be a bunch of other people like uh, Timothy Alberino and um, Dr. Laura Sanger and and things. So uh, yeah. I mean, and I think that thing sold out right away, didn't I? Mean, there's no more tickets left, right?
0: It sounds like it sold out literally within a couple of days, and that was just to their like subscribers. It didn't even hit the public. So, I'm super excited to meet you, Tony, uh, and just to meet the Blurry guys for sure. And I
2: think it's going to be amazing. Sounds like we might do some stuff together. So I can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be a big old party. Too bad people listening right now, they're going to miss it. <laughs> unless unless they're members over at Blurry Creatures. I mean, then, then maybe they got in on the action. But uh, There
0: you go, then they got this inside scoop.
2: Yeah, yeah, buddy. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, though. And uh, before we get out of here, Derek, uh, let the people know again one more time where they can find all your stuff.
0: Yeah, follow me on uh, Instagram, at Megalithic Marvels. I'm on uh, TikTok as well, Facebook, all the things, YouTube. Um and yeah megalithicmarvels.com is kind of the blog where we've got more articles there Um, so having lots of fun would love to connect and um, yeah I'm just excited that we're living in a time where there's there does seem to be this awakening man where we're kind of hitting the mainstream pushing back on the mainstream narrative and uh, getting to the truth of our past which I think affects our future so exciting times
2: well that's the show everybody i really hope you enjoyed it if you did enjoy it please share the show with your friends i don't care where or how you share the show just share the show if you enjoyed it that's the best thing you can do to help the show grow share the show all right friends until next week stay safe take care and remember the truth will set you free but first it'll piss you off bye